I get fiery about this because oftentimes as a regular, having been inside companies and watched this in my client work, you put regulatory in this place of being completely out of the loop of the development of the message. And then you plop an ECN on the desk of that, you know, that professional and say, sign this, we're going to print tomorrow. And like, I don't have enough information. The only power I have to stop this and protect my own reputation and the reputation of the company is my no. And so, yeah, you're right. right. They become the no people or the anti-sales. But what if we had um, made them part of our um, creative process so that they were coming along with us? And maybe they would have thought of things if they're any good, by the way. And if they're not, mm -hmm. then you got the wrong person. Um, maybe they would have thought of things that we didn't think of as smart sales and marketing people. So another best practice is, is having a, um, ideation creative session with either an external marketing um, firm or internal with our own resources. That's, that's a process that's, a, you know, um, populated with regulatory quality R and D, not just sales and marketing, not just the, you know, ad agencies, but instead really getting, you know, a, a more fulsome, you know, group of individuals to, to bounce ideas off of and tell you where the lines are, you know, because isn't that really what you want to know? Welcome to the Message Engineer Show. I am your host, Maureen Schaefer. Uh, today we have Colleen Hiddle with us. Colleen has 30 years of regulatory, clinical, and compliance expertise. Uh, she rose up through the Anson Group to become a managing partner and then owner and CEO, uh, negotiating a successful exit to Navigant after 17 years of organic growth and success. Uh, Colleen spent time at Navigant before founding Pro Veritas Partners four years ago. Uh, Colleen has an industrial engineering degree from Purdue. So welcome to the Message Engineer podcast, Colleen. Thanks, Maureen. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I like to start with uh, a few words, what I call define the word warm up uh, to get started. And so what I'll do is offer up uh, a few words and ask you for kind of your thoughts and opinions and kind of definitions of them. Okay. So, uh, all right. One near and dear to my heart message or messaging? Hmm. Um, I think for me, that is the lens through which we communicate. And um, in a world of product development, which I know is kind of where most of your audience is, is very focused, I think each of us brings a lens through which we communicate. And that's the beauty of multidisciplinary product development and, and how we are able to ideate and uh, continuously improve on, on ideas and concepts. So for me, the message is the lens through which you're thinking about an issue or a problem. And many voices lead, in my opinion, to kind of better, uh, better outcomes. Uh, great, great point about the idea of kind of the lens through which we see things and also the idea that, you know, many voices uh, lead to a better outcome, maybe a slightly longer decision-making cycle, uh, but a much better outcome at the end of the day. So really critical. Uh, marketing. 
Well, early in my career, someone told me if regulatory and marketing get along, um, you know, that that's a bad sign, you know, that somehow that's a that's a problem that the, those two need to be kind of averse, you know, uh, always in, in battle for the words on the page. Um, and I took that to heart. I used to think that go regulatory and compliance needed to be the police. Um, and as I got involved in more startups, both, you know, on the company side, but also as an investor, I came to appreciate the marketing is um, is really powerful, can be really powerful. And um, marketing for me now means how do we all, just to, to pick up from that last word, how do we all message around what this thing, this thing or service does through all of our various different disciplines. And so for me, marketing is now power. It, it's not something to be fearful of or control, but instead to add to, um, again, through maybe regulatory quality or compliance, at least in my, in my case, you know, how do we empower them with more information so that we can um, you know, be more successful against our competition, so. It's a that's a great way to it's a great way to look at it. The idea of kind of empowering versus the police approach, right? And most marketing people uh, and a lot of my clients still I still hear a lot of that <laughs> of viewing you know kind of regulatory and compliance through that lens. So the what did someone call them? The oh I can't I'll remember later. I remember later. I've, I've heard people call them like the no police or, you know, like always looking to find a reason not to be able to say something rather than help me get to the yes. And mm -hmm. so I think the best regulatory people often are being creative. They're trying to be creative. Um, and that's where I think sometimes having a more technical perspective on regulatory can be more empowering, more helpful because you'd be thinking mm -hmm. about, you know, what can I say yes to, uh, to support marketing? Yeah, I think, yeah, that gets into, I want to, I want to ask you one more thing and then let's, I'd love to circle back to that. Uh, so risk. Well, um, in the world of consulting, and now I think I've spent more years consulting than I did in-house, um, it's all about risk management and understanding your client's risk tolerance. And a lot of startups have, um, you know, more um, appetite for risk because they have less maybe to lose. Now, some might argue that, no, if you lose your reputation early on in your launch, then you're, you're sunk. But let's just maybe say financial resources. Most startups um, don't have the deeper pockets that some of the big multinationals do. So um, mm -hmm. in the world of consulting, risk to me is really about understanding your risk tolerance so that I can bring my advice around risk management or mitigation mm -hmm. to, to you and really understanding what, what you can tolerate, where your areas um, of tolerance are around risk and mm -hmm. how to help you make choices informed by that risk uh, tolerance. Yeah, that, that balance is a great point about risk management and risk mitigation, um, right? Because there's no world with zero risk. No, no, for sure. And it's about where you want to, where you want to take on risk and what you're willing to accept. And mm -hmm. then I think if you've done a good job, again, back to the world of consulting, if you've done a good job with risk management, then you've You've contemplated, okay, if this happens, what can we do with that? 
And so then you're getting your client comfortable with, okay, yeah, we could manage that. Here's, here's some things we could do. So your contingency planning, if you will. Mm -hmm. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. So one of the things I'm, I'm interested in is maybe walking through a rate, because a lot of audiences uh, around med tech startups and digital health startups and all those folks who fall under the banner of med tech at this point in time, uh, which is a growing. It's true. Growing it is growing. <laughs> yeah. very, very rapidly. And the investment along with it, thankfully. Uh, so, and, and you've had the opportunity, right, as, uh, as, a, con- as have, you know, a consulting company to go in and kind of see in multiple different companies what what's happening. And I'm wondering... At the beginning, if we walk through, let's say, a life cycle of a startup from, let's say, there's a beginning and a, a middle and an end, whether it's like at concept or day zero, like design freeze or submission and then commercialization, let's say U.S. <laughs> for today, uh, then what are some of the things that you've seen as kind of best practices kind of at the beginning um, maybe the middle and the end and or flip it over. And what do you see a lot of your clients are missing? Mm-hmm. Kind of along that life cycle. Yeah, I love that we hadn't rehearsed that. And that was like, that's the best, easiest <laughs> softball. Because, you know, as you get further in your career, you know this. I've done a lot of M&A and diligence work. And so I've had an opportunity to communicate to my client, like, look, this is what we see as strengths and weaknesses of this asset. And here's what you would need to do on your day zero to to mitigate the risk. So um, I'll take it from the, from the flip, you know, I think one of the biggest mistakes um, med tech startups make is not appreciating design controls, um, you know, earlier in the process. And and for sure, there's a lot of, in, in med device, there's a lot of flexibility prior to kind of that design freeze. Um, but, but even kind of going back and having to create, you know, your device history, you know, um, prior to design freeze is tough if you haven't done the job of, of documenting. So for me, a best practice is having even even the bones of a quality system that has um, done some amount of documenting corrective action, um, design inputs, any kind of VNV that's been done, you know, it's, it's the framework of a quality system. And that that does two things. The one, the the point that I made a minute ago, which is kind of starting, um, you know, your design control process, but you've also then embedded a culture that respects and and recognizes quality and compliance as a big part mm. of our future success. And so often you you see these startups that have great ideas, um, might be really smart technically, but they've not built a culture of compliance. So so then, you know, God forbid they get acquired, but but even if the if, as they're working with partners and in product development, they don't have that culture of, of compliance kind of built in. And so a framework of a QMS does both things. Number one provides that, you know, compliance infrastructure, but then it starts to plant the seeds of culture within that first um, group of, of R and D. That make, that makes a lot of sense. The idea that it's, you have, you know, the QMS or quality management system in some form so that everyone knows it exists and 
it is well known then that this is a critical part of kind of who we are and how we do things, right? So what need, what do you think should be happening then as it relates to, let's say like labeling very broadly mm-hmm. at the beginning, right? So people are always out there talking to other people, whether you're selling or pitching or, you know, what kind of things do those kind of day zero or day one companies need to be thinking about in their, let's say their QMS or some other system as it relates to kind of messaging, whether it's, right, they're not in full commercialization, but they might be putting on a press release. Maybe they got some seed funding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, they want to let them know they exist or they hired some important, you know, someone to be their CEO, et cetera. Yeah. So uh, two points. Number one, um, a bare bone procedure process cheat sheet, FAQ, something that you're putting in the hands, especially of those that are on the front lines, to your point, anyone that's writing a press release, anyone that's speaking to a KOL or at a a meeting, there should be some some yeses and some nos, some guidelines. Ideally, it's in a documented work process that's been approved by the appropriate individuals, but I recognize that's probably um, not always realistic. Um, But at minimum, they've got a cheat sheet, like can't say this. It's okay to say that. Here's if they ask this, this is what we say. So we have kind of just like a common playbook um, mm. so that we don't run, you know, start running our mouth and, and just get too, um, too reachy, if you will, on, on either the product's status in product development or what we hope the product will do ultimately in the marketplace. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that that makes a lot of sense to have kind of this, like, I was almost envision like you were saying, like a do, do not, like you can do this, say this, say that, do this thing. You do not say this, say that. Yeah. <laughs> kind of do these things, certain things to avoid, mm-hmm. um, kind of in that pre, pre-approval, pre pre-clearance uh, kind of time right. frame. So what do you... What do you think kind of when people are, I won't say the mid stage of the company's life cycle, but let's say, you know, midway through their first product launch or service launch or product and service launch. (laughs) Yeah. So um, hopefully by that point, they have some kind of a regulatory opinion document, something that assesses Mm -hmm. the classification or categorization of, of the device itself, according to the code, or if it's a PMA, you know, what is our, what's our plan for approval? Cause usually if you're saying mid launch, that means that I've got some pathway to, to mm-hmm. the market. So then, then you're getting much more informed by your competition, other people in that same product code, what their marketing claims are, what the regulators think our claims can be, you know, sometimes a company is in an exempt status, maybe it's got a 510k. So then it's, it's much beefier, right? You're, you're, um, you're putting into the hands of those folks managing launch. This is what we do. This is what others do. And so then it becomes more of a competitive landscape, trying to think through same, different, better, you know, um, that kind Mm -hmm. of language, more comparative language. Um, So it's, it's certainly much more um, robust because you're, you're much further along in the regulatory strategy of the product and can say much more about others in the marketplace. Or if you're the first, what's the unmet need? Mm-hmm. Yeah, to really thoroughly understand that. 
Uh, and then I'll just jump to commercialization and then we'll, we'll circle back again. But commercialization, I think one of the, I think from a kind of systems and compliant kind of best practices and or what's often missing standpoint. And then uh, I'd love to talk about the, the kind of no police. Mm-hmm. I think it was the anti-sales department. Oh, there you go. That's it. It's the, that's it. That is a good one. Um, yeah, I think commercialization, just to, to pick up on the kind of mid-launch, you know, in commercialization, you have m- more post-market experience with the product. Maybe you've mm-hmm. got some clinical studies to talk about. Um, it's much more in the hands of the user versus, you know, earlier in product development and you're dealing with a lot of either bench or, you know, um, anticipatory kind of performance of the product. Mm-hmm. Whereas once you've launched, you're getting it in the hands of actual users and, and getting to talk about what the kind of outcomes are. So that's where your post-market data comes in. Um, and the experience of KOLs and publications and things of that nature, that can be much, you know, very powerful uh, at that stage of, of product development. Uh, when you look at companies that have done, when you go in and they, they have some kind of, they're in some tangle with one of our regulators, <laughs> the FDA or the DOJ or others. Uh, what do you often see startups are missing? What what do you think sometimes they don't? You mentioned design controls before. Um, what do you think they're, what do you see that they're missing a lot of times? So I'll give you a bit of background to that. Um, when I was the VP of Marketing Education Reimbursement at Atricure, we had an indication for soft tissue ablation. Um, but cardiac surgeons were choosing to apply it to treat to cardiac tissue to treat um, to treat atrial fibrillation, so an irregular heartbeat. And we were we had clinical studies to right, right underway under IDE for cardiac. We had clinical studies underway for. Um, for AF or atrial fibrillation. Um, so we're doing the right thing. So one of the things I found most informative as I sought to build a robust kind of compliant marketing department was the Pfizer uh, Corporate Integrity Agreement, their CIA, because it detailed the systems that the DOJ expected them to have and follow. And so I kind of took my cues from that. And I'm wondering... I mean, that was 20 years ago. So I'm wondering kind of what are some of the best practices in those kind of unclear situations and, um, you know, what are, what do people need to be thinking about that they're often not? Mm. It's a great question. Um, and I don't know the, the background of Atricure, so t- nothing I should say right. should, should suggest that I, I know, um, the specifics there, but, um, FDA has always been clear that when it comes to off-label use of, of your product, that they expect that within design controls, you're anticipating how users might be prone to using it off-label. And I don't, I, I don't know if the mm-hmm. AF would, would fall into that category or not, but maybe it sounds like if you were studying it under an IDE, you had anticipated that that was not an indication for use for which you had um, direct approval. So... Um, documentation within your within your design files is key for off-label use. In other words, ever all the way through, you know, your VNV, but then once the product is launched in your post-market experience, gathering both in real time and in publications, 
all the different potential off-label uses of the product. That is a, that's a mandate. That's just a requirement. And being able to document that mm -hmm. within your design controls is a powerful mitigation for when and if a regula regulator would come to you and say, hey, you know, what about this use of the product? We have reason to believe it's being used off-label and here are the problems with that. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a in, to specifically address um, that example. But broadly, your question was, you know, what do companies miss? And, and I think the biggest thing that's missed is understanding. Remember, we were talking about message at the beginning, mm -hmm. understanding how FDA or God forbid the DOJ communicates, yeah. right? The message. Right. What does it mean when they when they ask a question about I'm making this up, an adverse event that they got within their database that they're following up and trying to ask information? Is that is that a bad thing? What are they what are they getting at? And and better being attuned to managing um, FDA communication at the outset before things start mm -hmm. snowballing or getting out of control reading between mm -hmm. the lines a little bit or just understanding more how FDA operates. I think that's one of the big misses. And, and that's where I think some companies do find themselves, you know, in, in a bad situation when they haven't even realized that that was where they were headed. Um, so maybe yeah. naivete. Um, and then I just think it's it just as a completely different point, what I heard you say about reading the, the Pfizer consent decree. I mean, that talk about talk about scorched earth. <laughs> that that would have been like you know kind of worst nightmare uh, you know when you were you know running marketing at that company. So so that's like the worst possible scenario. So if if that's your bible or at least that's the thing that keeps you up at night, anything less than that, I think <laughs> went pretty well. <laughs> Yeah, it was, we built, I built systems where um, we eventually, oh, a whistleblower showed up, not at, from our company, but from the field. I don't even remember which company, but there were like five companies in this space. And uh, there, wa there was, I don't even remember who it is. And uh, I, I got a phone call saying, hey, we need to produce um, discover, we're, you know, we need to produce discovery to the DOJ of everything that's been sent to anyone kind of since the company, you know, since the company started. Yeah. And I was able to say, because we sent everything, I'd built a system with another company, another software company, that everything was sent at that point, Blackberries, but sales could literally like punch in an email address yep. and select what they wanted. Yep. And we wrapped it with a regular, with all the regulatory disclaimers, yep. with the marketing brand. And if it had to be routed, we'd route it appropriately. Um, and like, if they're asking for a scientific article or something like that, we'd route it through clinical for them to take a look at and decide yay or nay and right forward it on. And so all of that was documented. So we were able to produce that in 24 hours, like, so that was my, that's how I read it and kind of what we implemented because, and it helped marketing, right? We could see what people want and what they opened and what they're interested in and mm -hmm. sales could get it faster. And we didn't have to worry about which revision they had because then yeah. we uploaded something new, bam. Even if they sent them an email a month ago, they have the new revision when they clicked in the link. So um, I really did take that to heart because I, I, yeah, I wanted every I wanted us doing the right thing and saying the right thing 
um, and still put, you know, getting out there and shouting from the hilltops, like how great we are. Uh, so what you're describing, I think, first of all, is amazing and, um, and is a best practice, of course. Um, and what you're describing is that is the objective evidence of a QMS, right? I mean, those individuals to even say I have a revision level means you've got document control for those, for those documents, right? Those, you know, Mm -hmm. peripherals. Um, But also um, the training and education and awareness of those people to, to use email Mm -hmm. that's on the server to, um, to live by some, you know, those guiding principles. I mean, because it's one thing to say, okay, um, you have an inquiry from DOJ, send us everything that you've sent on this topic. But the sister to that is the knock on the door for the audit itself. And that's where the QMS becomes such a powerful tool to be able to support the, the how um, you know, these documents are shared and, and the controls around there, the training, you know, the, the way that you bring awareness to um, sales and marketing uh, around the sensitivity of some of these points. So to me, it's, it's what you described and um, the foundation that you build that on is a QMS that everybody respects and, and lives by. Yeah, no, that, yeah, that makes, that makes complete sense. We also had the pleasure of being audited by the FDA, just the marketing department while I was there. Interesting. Uh, and we passed with no, I don't remember, it's like whatever, no written. 483s, yeah. Yes, no 483s. That's, that's by itself <laughs> impressive because as you know, that's um, usually if FDA is going to come, uh, I think at one time it was 70% of audits, at, you know, uh, result in a four at one time. Don't don't quote me on that right, data yeah, today, yeah. but uh, it used to be the case that the vast majority wow. got a four eighty three. Yeah, that was yeah one of our competitors. So I have a question for you because it was interesting that you said that there's more, and I agree. I I, I agree with that. This idea that there's more risk tolerance in startups, perhaps, than in larger companies. Um, by the same token. Sometimes I've seen where the easiest way for a large, like multi-billion dollar multinational um, to mess with you is to mess with startups, <laughs> is to, you know, catch, catch someone doing something that's kind of, that is inappropriate. Mm-hmm. So for example, we, and the, what triggered that audit specifically was a sales rep stapled an off-label peer-reviewed scientific publication to a product brochure with their business card. Thanks that and <laughs> that's why they showed up yeah. but we were able to demonstrate that that's not how we did things right. through training right. through yeah so yeah so we were able to say hey that was one rogue person mm-hmm. so i'm wondering when you think about startups having generally speaking right a, a higher risk tolerance um, which makes sense you know what do you see relative to um kind of competition and the multinationals? Have you seen other other um, incidents of this where they try to catch you doing, they try to catch startups doing something wrong and get you tangled up in some? Sure. <laughs> so that doesn't, right? It doesn't mean you shouldn't be called out if you are making mistakes. I'm not saying that. Yeah, no, um, I certainly have seen that. Um, and, you know, 
I have had mixed experience with FDA following up on those things um, with any um, consistency, you know, and it kind of makes you wonder, like, why do some get, you know, why do some get an inquiry from the DOJ and an audit from FDA and some get nothing after years and years of, you know, bad behavior? Um, and the cynical side of me can offer a couple of theories there, but let's set that aside. I'd like to believe <laughs> that um, our government and FDA is risk-based. And so maybe there's certain right. product areas that just don't lend themselves to, you know, a lot of there, there, you know, if there's not a big mm-hmm. post-market um, concern, if there isn't a lot of strong patient advocacy where there are potential risks, you can see where there mm-hmm. might be a class of products. And honestly, some of that in um, in high tech in in software and mm. and such, um, whereas more of a deregulatory kind of environment. Um, but back to your point about risk tolerance with startups, there are and and that was a general statement. It's certainly not true right. across the sure. board. I could argue also that I have in my consulting career seen a lot of very very large companies who have. Um, because there's so many layers of of um, of management or regulatory scientists mm-hmm. or clinical or whatever, there's this kind of we're all in this together sentiment where we're mm-hmm. a little bit com- you know um, complicit in in some of our pushing the envelope and you know a little bit of groupthink mm-hmm. and convincing ourselves mm-hmm. that that's okay. Um, so they're sure they're for sure um, big companies that take big risks because they have gotten that way, um, you know, through their own um, successes, honestly, or being able to skirt right. or skate by the regulators in some key areas because of their name, um, you know, and their name recognition or um, influence, <laughs> if you will, um, in parts of FDA or with the government. You know, I'm always like scratching my head sometimes and I look at like, how am I going away with that? Um, but I was just making a general statement about risk tolerance. And for sure, um, when you have big companies that have boards and compliance committees and a lot of infrastructure or have been burned, you know, mm-hmm. once bitten twice shy, right, by DOJ right. had an FDA consent decree or something like that. Um, I think by and large, um, my statement is probably is is probably true if it was borne out in the data, but we've for sure seen, you know, uh, outliers in that respect. Mm-hmm. Uh, one last question. Well, I want to jump back to the regulatory marketing piece or reg clin quality mm-hmm. compliance and marketing piece uh, and sales. I'll throw sales in the same market bucket with marketing. Uh, is what what are some of the things that are going on right now that we should be we med device uh, sales and marketing or regulatory clin quality should be a attuned to or paying attention to as as pertains to either what's some of the things that are happening in enforcement, some of the things that you see happening around auditing, anything you see happening around. Did you, I think digital health to me is like such, I, has so much promise, so much promise, has, has done a lot of, and all that kind of ancillary piece of that so much. But I also, and I also see that a lot of those folks come from outside the life sciences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So um, are you seeing anything that we ought to be attuned to that's shifting in kind of enforcement or policy decisions? Yeah. It's a great question. Um, 
And I would not, my, my comments are not going to be unique to digital health and what I'm about to say as a, as a first step. Mm -hmm. um, for sure, in a post-pandemic world, we're seeing enforcement, most more the FDA activity in that post-market um, compliance right. area. It's, it's easy. It's right. cheap. I don't have to send an auditor out. Um, so what does that mean? It, it's promotion and advertising, it's website, it's um, meetings, you know, publications in, in that respect. Um, and it kind of lines up with the CERs and what's happening, you know, in, in Europe around, um, you know, the new uh, MDR for CE marking. Um, and then, of course, you know, the um, adverse event. Uh, database and reporting and such. I, you know, mm -hmm. I have a lot of, of clients who are getting just those over and over again, those inquiries around, Hey, we noticed an uptick in, in adverse events on this particular technology. Can you explain that? But I think that's more a product of limited resources and trying mm -hmm. to be risk-based. They're looking at their own signals, you know, through post-market data to try to do mm -hmm. some enforcement without, you know, using an auditor to get on a plane and go knock on a door. Um, so to your question, what am I seeing as a trend? That's a trend for sure. Um, I haven't seen a lot of specific enforcement in my own digital health um, work, but that's certainly not, you know, the only area I practice. So I would probably want to ask someone who's unique and only focused on digital health, you know, how, what the trends are in, in that respect. For sure. We're seeing a lot of, um, you know, more guidance and standards development. So, you know, right. I would suggest that's coming at some point. And no doubt about that. <laughs> One, I think at the end of September, there was one just recently mm -hmm. that came out or they mm -hmm. revised and issued yeah. guidance. Uh, so I want to just kind of switch. So we've talked a lot about kind of the life cycle and what, what people need to think about, you know, risk tolerance, risk management, and uh, kind of the controls and that to really thinking about following and using design controls, which exist for everyone's benefit. Um, including the patient <laughs> or the recipient of this at the end of the day. Uh, so regulatory marketing. So I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of really great kind of regulatory clinical and uh, compliance folks. And I'm, it's one, of the, it's one of those kind of relationships, as you mentioned before, that uh, the no police, or I've heard it called the anti-sales department. So, and I, I don't believe any of those but there, there is that. And, and I still get clients saying to me, well, regulatory said I can't say that. And I'm like, well, but why? This is coming from sales and marketing, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. so yeah. People I'm doing CEOs and sales and marketing. And I'm like, but why? I don't know. They just said I can't say that. But why? Right? Like, so... What are, what are some things you've seen? What do you think like marketing is missing or sales and marketing is missing about establishing a positive relationship with regulatory? Mm -hmm. what, how can we do better to help the company grow and have strong, right? To keep it, have a strong message and strong campaigns. Yeah. I mean, what are, yeah. yeah. Can you run me through some best practices? Oh, I've got a there? lot of ideas about this. 
Um, and I'm going to try and organize my thoughts. Um, I'll start at the top. And, and the first is company culture. And I point to executive management as setting the tone for um, how we how we resolve disagreements, how we ideate, how we encourage, you know, various inputs and ideas that maybe don't align with each other. You know, part of it is literally the culture itself. And what, what the culture drives is hiring. And some people use regulatory mm-hmm. as a police and they hire for that. And that's a problem because then you've, you've automatically put that person by their background or reputation or experience in the role of being the conscience of the company. And mm-hmm. that's not only not fair to the individual, um, it's a dis, it's a discredit to the discipline. And I'm pretty, I get fiery about this <laughs> because oftentimes as a regular, having been inside companies and watched this in my mm-hmm. client work, you put regulatory in this place of being completely out of the loop of the development of the message. And then you plop an ECN on the desk of that, you know, the, that professional and say, sign this, we're going to print tomorrow. And like, I don't have enough information. The only power I have to stop this and protect my own reputation and the reputation of the company is my no. And so, yeah, you're right. Right. They become the no people or the anti-sales. But what if we had um, made them part of our um, creative process so that they were coming along with us and maybe they would have thought of things if they're any good, by the way. And if they're not, Mm -hmm. then you got the wrong person. Um, maybe they would have thought of things that we didn't think of as smart sales and marketing people. So another best practice is, is having a, um, ideation creative session with either an external marketing um, firm or internal with our own resources. That's, that's a process that's, you know, um, populated with regulatory quality R and D, not just sales and marketing, not just the, you know, ad agencies, but instead really getting, you know, a, a more fulsome, you know, group of individuals to, to bounce ideas off of and tell you where the lines are, you know, because isn't that really what you want to know? Where are my lines? Um, right. And then I, it's like, don't drive into the ditch. Don't drive off the bridge and land on the botanic. Yeah. Don't. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then I think what happens to some sales and marketing folks um, is that they just get angry and frustrated and they're like, they won't let me, but yet they're not really engaging in a way to to settle the difference or find a middle ground. And maybe it's just easier for them just to be, you know, frustrated. I don't know. So um, again, best practice culture, the right hire, a, a person that's not just a no person. And you've got to figure that out when you're hiring regulatory and, okay. and PS. Good regulatory people are there are defined now. Um we can talk about why, you know, in another, at another time, but, uh, and then the third point is just, um, encouraging sales and marketing to bring regulatory and compliance and legal and clinical along for the ride and, and make them part of your creative process rather than just having them as an approver, um, and expecting them to, to just simply sign off just because, you know, they feel pressure. Uh, 
I think that's brilliant to bring in all those folks will be weighing in on the ultimate approval, right, of any content, let's say, and uh, to bring them along, not only so that they're on the same page, but more importantly, to be able to say, you said kind of where the lines are, right, which I interpret as, hey, you can't say that that you want to say, but you could say this. Or you could say that if, yeah. or when, or, right? Yeah. But the, developing that kind of understanding very early, um, because as you said, it sets everyone up for failure if marketing walks, you said, walks in with the ECN or the DCN or whatever the company calls it, right? The document that says it's done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, oh. Yeah, yeah. There's another point that I failed to make in in my um, passion I I forgot about, but uh, it it has to do with the environment. Um, I think sometimes sales and marketing people get frustrated because they said, well, last year they said such and such, and now, you know, what's changed? And yeah, lots can change. Um, You've got, you know, other, I've heard that other companies, people coming into the market, what we've learned from post-market data. It's not, it's not static. And mm-hmm. it's important if you respect the voice of regulatory and compliance in it kind of in this multidisciplinary product development team, the Kumbaya, then you also have to realize that, um, you know, sometimes the, the environment shifts and it's always important mm-hmm. to continuously assess risk by product, by company, and, and so sometimes the answer can change or the guardrails might look a little different. And that's not where only regulatory says the no, but again, in a, in a healthy culture, we're exchanging these ideas and deciding as an executive team or a management team, you know, what we can mm-hmm. live with. Absolutely. I think that's a, that's a great point that if the approvers, regulatory, quality, clinical, whomever's appropriate, right, are part of the process of developing, let's just say sales and marketing content broadly, um, that then they can provide the, and you've hired the right people to begin with, right, who aren't the police uh, from, from the regulatory and quality side, that then you have the ability to create it, create something really terrific together. Um, and throughout that process, right, because these things take time, if things shift, then you have the regulatory has the opportunity to guide marketing to mitigate the risk as things shift and change. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that's, yeah, that's, criti- that's critically important. And you mentioned a, a word <laughs> that I don't often hear spoken relative to, and I, I'm putting like reg, clin, quality, all in compliance in the same bucket, but uh, regulatory spoke relative to regulatory marketing's relationship, regulatory and sales. Um, that's respect. And I wonder, I was wondering as you were talking about that, if what you thought about, do you think one way to develop that respect might be involving people kind of at the front end and working together? Like, would that help? Are there other things that would help? How do you, how do you help build respect or create the environment or the culture for respect between departments that are often put, you know, up against each other stereotypically. Yeah. 
Um, I have a couple of ideas about this. I think the um, one thing I'm super um, grateful for is that I got my start as a young engineer in an environment that really um, respected regulatory. It was, they were very um, product focused, very technically um, astute, uh, clinically astute. Um, Mm -hmm. so, so I, you know, I trained in an environment where that wasn't a problem. And I, I came in, you know, I was in this rotational program and, you know, most people would say like, oh, all the cool kids go to marketing or R and D and nobody cool goes to quality or regulatory, but that wasn't the case. I mean, there were great opportunities and in quality and regulatory. And so kind of early on in my career, I ended, you know, I, I drifted to that discipline rather than, you know, uh, product development or or manufacturing or whatever. Um, so, so what I'm saying isn't necessarily true about every company, but it's mm. where hiring is so key. If you're hiring a no person that doesn't have any technical product experience, um, then you do set yourself up mm-hmm. for sales and marketing to not respect regulatory. I mean, that just is, mm-hmm. I, you, it's hard to argue that, right? And most sales and marketing people really know their product. And if you have a regulatory person that doesn't, then you're not creating true peer relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you asked what are some best practices and, and one that I've seen be very effective and if this doesn't work for every company is bringing sales and marketing along with your, in your regulatory journey, having sales and marketing sit through an FDA meeting through a Q sub, looking at the deficiency responses, really understanding where the pushback from the regulators are rather than letting regulatory be that single voice after the fact, bringing the commercial people into those settings so they can hear in real time what FDA might be concerned about or your notified body might be concerned about. Because otherwise, they may be skeptical. Is regulatory really telling the true or is this, is this they're just, um, you know, they're just worried uh, that, that we're going to get in trouble? Is that really a problem? Yes or no? And so one best practice I've, I've seen is, is really bringing those commercial people into the regulatory discussions so they can hear it firsthand and understand the risks firsthand rather than, you know, through the, the voice of a single, you know, regulatory person. That's a, that's a great, makes me think about a couple of things that may, that's a great idea. I've, I've never done that actually. Well, I've, uh, I had a client. I mean, I've been involved in, yeah. when you think about, uh, what kind of cl- what's our clinical plan look like? What's our yeah. plan look like? Yeah. Publication plan look like? Yeah. Um, definitely, right? Because we're always in in regulatory from the standpoint of which indication do we file for? You know, do we go for like what we want mm-hmm. at the end? Do we step? Do we stair step this? Mm-hmm. Right, and then you stair step clinicals to along with it. Oftentimes, so uh, yeah, it's really interesting because I can remember like a video in my head of. My, it was like my office, like, a, you know, six feet, the copy machine, and then the door to the main corporate, like, board, you know, boardroom, essentially, which is where FDA was when they did that audit of my department. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I saw my Marcom manager sitting at the copier the whole time, like, making copies for the fo- But I had no idea. It was like a black box. Yeah. Yeah. Right? like a black box. And at the end of the day, I would, you know, go talk to their VP and I'd say, 
a rug cleaner and say, how'd it go? What happened? Yeah. You know? Right. So, but how eye-opening would that have been if I were actually just, just as an observer, not saying anything. Right. Um, But to have learned from that. It's important what you just said. And I wanted to make sure that I I put the finer point on that because I don't want to be taken out of context. It doesn't work in every company. And that person that the observer needs to know that they're there to listen and, and not to talk. <laughs> oh, I'm super clear. We are meeting, um, you know, we want to bring you in for um, perspective. But so, so again, doesn't work in every company, yeah. but um, it can it can be helpful. That's a, I think that's a great idea. Well, what it all, what it also made me think of is, um, I oftentimes with R and D, like when you're right, you're going through this development, right, concept to kind of launch and beyond, and there are always these points where they say. Oh, well, marketing's requirement is, or marketing wants. And every, every time I'm like, time, time out. Marketing doesn't want that. I don't want that. The customer has told us they want that. Or the patient, popul- you know, the healthcare consumers yeah. have told us yeah. that's what they want. This isn't coming from me. This is the marketing department holistically. This is the customer's requirement. Yeah. So I, I think that's the same thing with made me think that when you said like regulatory and bringing marketing people in, because oftentimes it's, well, regulatory says, or right. Yeah. But where it really is perhaps the FDA says, or recent enforcement, you know, um, action tells us like there's evidence. That's a cultural <laughs> thing, right? I mean, we've become so egoic in these big entities that marketing, what is marketing? I mean, wh- it's a group of human individuals with ideas and we're all marching to some marketing plan that's informed by customer need, unmet need in the market. So I, I'm with you, like um, part of that's a cultural issue. And mm-hmm. when we throw that term around, it it divides us. It creates this kind of us versus them mentality, which mm-hmm. again is not going to lead to uh, better outcomes, more creative, you know, inspired. Let's all be on the same, you know, the same page kind of, um, you know, launch, if you will, in, in your example. So you talked a bit, you talked a bit at the beginning about culture and environment. And so I'm wondering You've talked a bit about hiring kind of regulatory people, right? And uh, what to avoid, right? The police approach and what to lean towards, like the more kind of creative, flexible um, approach. What what are some of the things in kind of culture or environment, and which which I know is like a massively overbroad question to ask you, but are, are there a couple of things you've seen where you say, hey, that was a really great idea, or this was a really great idea to try to bring the culture, create that culture of, you said something about um, resolve, no, it wasn't resolve. I don't remember the exact word, but it was basically to lessen conflict. You used another word, though. You used the glasses half full word. (laughs) Um, What are some of those things that you've seen really help bring the different departments together to help understand kind of you know, that culture, not phrasing it correctly, but like what are some of the best practices for culture that help imbue kind of risk mitigation and um, get, 
back and forth as opposed to conflict? Mm -hmm. Well, um, these, some of these are kind of big and, and, um, weighty. And, and so I recognize it's not pithy and tactical, um, what, which is what people when they listen to podcasts want. So I'll, I'll give you a couple of weighty ones that are much more aspirational, um, because you're asking about best practice and, and, um, in my consulting, uh, career, I've had a great opportunity to see some very high functioning teams and some not high functioning Mm. teams. And so I'll give a couple of examples and then we'll get to pithy and and tactical. Um, If you see a commercial organization that is full of VPs, you know, um, decision makers and your regulatory Mm -hmm. and compliance and quality people are director technicians, you're not going to have balance within your organization. And I don't mean you have to have a VP of regulatory in every business unit. That's not what I'm saying. But you can't establish these peer-to-peer relationships if you're treating regulatory like submission writers, and that's it. Or keep us out of trouble, people, and that's it. So it really starts with a job description Mm -hmm. that is a true companion to and peer to the business. And if your culture doesn't respect and bring quality and compliance at that level, executive committee, compliance committee, if they're not equally represented, um, then you're fighting a a difficult battle, right? In terms of finding something Mm -hmm. pithy and and, and tactical. Um, A lot of times, and again, a lot depends on the risk of the product because maybe that is appropriate for some product areas. But in general, I would say that the most performing companies um, set out to to provide the um, intellect, experience, and respect of that function, compliance, regulatory, legal, clinical, compliance, all the things we've talked about, which I recognize in every company aren't necessarily together. They need to be peers to these business folks and have the same voice. And, you know, that's executive leadership, bringing those people to the table and and holding space for their ideas um, and not putting them just in that, that no category. Um, So that was weighty and aspirational. I think that's a great point though, because you think about that in kind of when you think about kind of DEI initiatives and that is that you look at the power structure of an organization, right? And you say at the highest levels of power in an organization, do we see what we're, you know, what we're saying we want to be, or do we just see that at like five levels down yeah. <laughs> in the organization? Right. So, and then the power structure is going to, yep. And it all flows downwards, right? Yeah. So and your point about putting certain people on a, a essentially higher pedestal, like if you have SVP of sales and marketing, and then you have the director of regulatory, right. you're, you're setting it up to yeah. right not have that, and we, we know, right, they've studied decision-making mm-hmm. and they've studied boards, right. you know, and when you have a, a mix of people and different types of people, it takes a little longer to make decisions, but you make better decisions. And financially, the companies do better. Right. Like, so they've shown why, why are we still so far behind? And, you know, um, regulatory. I I don't mean to make this a gender issue, but you do see a lot of females in regulatory. And Mm -hmm. um, oftentimes it's the single female in an executive leadership team, maybe HR, 
but mm-hmm. the rest are oftentimes men. And um, mm-hmm. it just becomes a stereotype. And it's one that it's tired, you know, it's very tired. Mm-hmm. And it really is up to those executive leaders, in my opinion, it's on them to create more um, diversity. And again, I'm not making this a gender issue to your point, right? It's every kind of, of, of diversity. Um, right to make that more balanced um, because that is why we've gotten into the stereotype of regulatory being the no police. It's like, you're the mom. It's no different than HR, right? So I think a lot of my best friends are HR people because they've probably been in the same position. Um, So you were asking about some other ways to do it. And I, those were weighty and aspirational, but let me give you a few, you know, nuggets that are better clickbait and more tactical. Um, (laughs) Things that people who aren't the CEO could potentially right. or, or like, okay, do. I can't act on that. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's not, right. That doesn't help me today. Um, right. I have seen really um, the, a good use of regulatory and clinical input in this, um, in design controls or mm-hmm. product development processes where you're really including them at the table. Do an offsite for a couple of hours whiteboard, what can we, what what are some really big wins for indications for use or off-label promotion through what clinical trials, like what clinical trials are we going to design and and run to expand the use uh, for this product and really getting regulatory and clinical. And again, depends on how the organization is structured. Um, Do an offsite with, maybe with the ad agency, don't hold all the glitz you know, for sales and marketing, because sometimes when you're more of an operations regulatory person, it looks really fun on the outside. You're going out to all the medical meetings, you're, you're doing all the promotion, um, you're getting all the pens and you know, that, that feels, <laughs> it's true. Right? You get, getting all the pens. Yeah, That's the, why the booths and all the things, um, you know, bringing regulatory along for that and having them be part of that strategy. What is our medical meeting strategy and, and having them mm-hmm. be a voice in that, um, again, some tactical ideas for for how to start to to balance that out a bit. It's almost a uh, it's interesting because I've definitely heard in my career, hey, it's not. I'll just I'll throw this one out there. Uh, hey, it's not fair. Like from a marketing person, sales gets paid so much, and I'm like, mm-hmm. I said, if you would like to apply for a sales position, I'd be I'd be glad. <laughs> I'd be glad to, mm-hmm. you know, kind of support that. Mm-hmm. And they're like, yeah. I was like, what they do is hard. Yeah. I don't want to, like, I've never wanted that. I don't want to be out there doing that. I admire them and I respect them for that because that's not something I'm particularly good at. Um, well, I think the same holds true for regulatory marketing. And what's really fascinating is that I've definitely heard the comments over the years to, to your point about, Oh, you get to go to all the fun places. So you get to go to all these meetings. So you get to go X, Y, Z. And I think, you know, the reality is a little different. Of course. (laughs) Reality is a little different. But the easiest way to lessen the conflict and that, um, how should I say it, the perception of, it's almost like a, not power difference, but kind of sort of, uh, that perception is to, yeah, bring them along. Right. Have them come with you, mm-hmm. and uh, and I also think, just from a, a marketing standpoint, that a great a thing I'll toss out here that I haven't thought about in a long time until I was listening to you talk about it is uh, 
I often have focus groups. I would often have focus groups on, on the industry side at these major meetings. And uh, I, I'm sorry to say that it never occurred to me to invite kind of ClinReg. Yeah. And that would have been really great because they have a lot of clinical background. They have a lot of, right? We could have designed, we could have come up with something that's probably even, that was even more powerful than what I, you know, I'm, my teams have been doing. Um, so I think that that's a great idea to bring them to trade but also the things you do, like the dinners with the KOLs and the yeah. focus groups and the other things that go on so that they have a better understanding of how, of real life and how this happens and they can help be, help support that or ideate, like you said, ideate um, on solutions. When I was a young engineer, um, I was in the cath lab. I mean, let that settle in. And I was in regulatory and clinical, not as a product development engineer, right? And mm-hmm. um, not every company thinks like that. And I recognize the controls are different. That was in the 1900s. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> um, Please, you look so good. But me. it is powerful. It's powerful to hear the people that are using the products. Like you don't feel... Um, like what you're doing is is meaningless. So, yeah, that why? Like, why yeah. are we here? Yeah. Why are we here? How does this matter? Yeah. How do I how do I tie into this? Mm-hmm. And I think that is that is super. That is really that is really. I think the other thing, Maureen, that of late, and you know, I I say this in terms of a, a trend in my own you know consulting work. There is a lot because of the EU MDR. There's so much regulatory transactional work, this, you know, the CERs, you know, all of the um, the remediation, if you will, to get into compliance with those new requirements. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not dissimilar to when design controls, you know, went into effect in, again, the 1900s. So we've we've (laughs) lived through these, right? But kind of these trends of like regulatory, the perception of regulatory is, is is limited when when there's just stables of people. I'm making this up. Writing CERs versus what is our strategy for compliance? You know, it's it's kind of almost elevating the the discipline mm-hmm. to something that is much more as it was intended, rather than kind of a come from behind and clean up the mess kind of. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. Well, I, it completely makes sense. And one of the things that when I was at HCAD, great great colleagues um, in ClinReg, one person who is the VP of ClinReg and another person who's the VP of Quality. And we we talked a lot about the idea of building in compliance, like, right, it used to be you'd build a product, let's say a product, you build a product and then you'd inspect the product, right? You'd inspect out what failed, right. as opposed to building it in kind of at every step, right? All those checks at every step. And so we started to talk about how do we build in compliance? How do we make it a no brainer for sales and marketing? How do we design a process that where there are all these checks and balances where we, we mitigate risk and, and make it easier for sales to do their job. That's brilliant. And I, I'm all on board with that. And I've seen that in other high functioning companies that run much more efficient regulatory teams. Um, mm-hmm. Your 
more, you're kind of creating these centers of excellence where the people that know the thing are doing that thing and only that thing, rather than this brute force mm -hmm. method of everyone's going to write a CER until CERs are done. Um, I think it's easier. It was, it was literally the three of us. We all committed that we would show up every week. I bought lunch and right. The company bought lunch, but it was like, well, marketing can buy us lunch. Right. I'm like, not a problem. So, because that's what, you know, it's what marketing does. Right. And the pens. Don't forget the pens. <laughs> I never brought pens. <laughs> Food, no pens. And yeah, next time I'll bring the pens. Uh, but I was really lucky that the three of us agreed that we would always show up. We wouldn't send substitutes. We wouldn't. Like this was super critical for the company. Um, and that was, you know, in large part due to their commitment as well that we were able to do that. So it's not obviously practical mm -hmm. at a lot of organizations. Yeah. Were they both um, women? I'm just curious. Uh, the VP of ClinRag was a woman, uh, also an engineer, mechanical engineer, mm -hmm. right? So I have an engineering background, as you know, mm -hmm. um, and biomedical engineering and the VP of quality. He came up through engineering. I don't remember which discipline. Yeah. So we had three people who kind of thought about processes similarly. Right. I would and knew the product. In different yeah. disciplines. Yeah. So, but I think building it in is, and getting everyone to be thinking about it regularly. And, you know, your points about bringing marketing into, as an observer only, no talking, to a QSO meeting or an audit. Uh, and vice versa for trade shows, because our VP at ClinRag yep. and oftentimes VP of Quality would come to our events and our trade shows as well. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of, there was a lot of value there yeah. that they brought. Um, and a lot of times at, in bigger companies at that level, if you have an SVP of regulatory or, or, or clinical, um, a lot of times they have become more standards people or, you know, compliance people. And again, I, I think that's an important role, mm -hmm. but what I mean is really those that are driving the product strategy. So I just want to make sure we're not getting mm -hmm. lost in, in title and forgetting about what I'm really describing. And it is the person whose job it is to position the product in the marketplace through submissions and compliance and, and that kind of thing. Because a lot of times at that higher level, it's really people that are working on AdvaMed or, you know, standards committees, which isn't a very important thing, but it's slightly right. different than what you and I were describing, discussing. Right, kind of earlier, right, earlier stage companies right. where it's a little bit more of kind of, yeah, all hands on deck. Right. Yeah. Not the multi-billion dollar global company. Right, who can afford an SVP <laughs> that doesn't. Yeah, that higher, yeah. yeah, that has to operate very, very differently. Very, very differently. So I love the ideas of, you brought forth a lot of great ideas. Respect, um, how to develop respect, how people should be situated in equivalent kind of positions of power to set people up for you know, be collegial peer discussions, right? And uh, bringing, bringing folks you went from other departments into situations or opportunities or meetings or trade shows or other things where they can kind of see in real life, right? That it's um, what's happening, why it's happening and uh, kind of understand the basis I think it's really understanding kind of the basis for some of these things, mm -hmm. right? Like, why would marketing say that? 
Well, because the customer said, why would regulatory say that? Well, because, right. right? Regulatory doesn't sit at home thinking through like, how can I mess with the marketing department and make their lives more difficult? And both on both sides, there should be an expectation that those individuals are bringing those explanations to the table and having those conversations. Mm-hmm. It's not just about saying no or just because marketing said so. It's it's having dialogue around the why. And if you're not getting that from regulatory, then you got the wrong regulatory person. And same to be said for marketing, of course, but I think it's yeah, something I know less about. I mean, I can tell you seeing seeing regulatory people that just a bad fit for an organization, but maybe the CEO brought them in because they wanted a no person. Right. <laughs> easier for them. And so right. I, I see how it happens, I guess. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think explaining the why behind that, you know, like we did this survey yeah. or we did the study yeah. or the last focus we had, or, you know, from a marketing standpoint, we can offer a lot of, or sales, you know, other than just sales wants this, why does sales want this? Why is this important? How will this allow us to differentiate ourselves from our competitors? Yeah. Like more of the story to it mm-hmm. um, being, of course, is brief, applying brevity, <laughs> but trying to deliver the kind of why um, and the same from regulatory. If regulatory doesn't offer it up asking or vice versa. Marketing doesn't offer it up, ask why. Mm-hmm. You know, why is that the case? Or why do you see that as such an important um, piece of this product, service, et cetera? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, um, you know, I hate to sound like I'm nostalgic for the early days of my engineering <laughs> career, but maybe I am. I did love that company. It was so good. It was such a great place to learn, wasn't it? Oh. That was amazing. But really, it was a startup, Maureen. When you think about it, it was a startup at that time. Um, And I think they did a great job of bringing everybody along in the explanation of what it is this product is going to do and why it's, you know, and not just like the glitz, but the the underneath, why that matters. We had a Mm -hmm. lot of opportunities to connect um, face-to-face and, and exchange ideas and enthusiasm. And, um, I I think two things have gotten in the way of that. Um, and I don't think we can't solve either one of them. (laughs) Um, too many meetings, too many, too many, um, our schedules are too packed to do that anymore. You know, there isn't space Mm -hmm. for that in companies anymore. We've tried to figure out how to be efficient, or whatever, we're, you know, the eight to five schedule when you're booked every hour, it doesn't allow for that. And so that's a, that's a problem in my opinion, because you're just missing out on, on that piece of it. Um, we've got Mm -hmm. so siloed in that respect. Um, and then I was going to say social media, but I won't say social media, much technology. You know, I think sometimes while it's great that you and I can be on this computer and see each other and and all Mm -hmm. that, it's not a substitute for, you know, uh, being in present, bring in the presence of another human and solving problems together. Mm-hmm. And, and back in the 1900s, we sat in the, in a conference room and did design meetings, design reviews and shared ideas. And it, it's just harder. I think now. I think it, yeah, I think it is more, it's interesting. Uh, I do think it is more challenging now, but I think one of the kind of superpowers that um, that Court has had was from concept to launch, you had everybody in the room. Yeah. 
I mean, I can remember the same like, people. Clinical, clinical was in the room. R&D was usually a couple of R&D folks. Marketing, not sales. We were like their proxy. Marketing was their proxy. Quality, regulatory. Everyone was in that room from the beginning. The minute the project was like, okay, go ahead. Everyone met. Mm -hmm. Like I seem to remember weekly. Um, And we had some discussions, Mm -hmm. (laughs) some debates in those meetings uh, but when we left, it was all still collegial. We real we knew we were all after the same goal, and I, I still look back and wonder how did that happen? Mm. Like, was it because HR and the training was so good? Like, how was it just a unique group of people? Was it? Yes, all, you know, all of that. I think they were all components yeah. of it: the culture, um, mm-hmm. the voices, the respect for the the various voices, but also we were. And not to overplay the fact that we were all physically in the same room, but they were the same person too. And I think that's one of the inefficiencies in a lot of today's models is if you don't have the same individual that stays with a product from beginning to end, mm-hmm. you know, you're constantly doing a handoff to a new regulatory person or a new quality person or, or God forbid, a consultant. Trust me, I'm, that's, that's what I do, um, right. which is not as efficient as is having, you know, a more consistent, you know, resource that again, really steeped in the product. Remember how much product training we got? I mean, it it just, it matters if you see how the thing is used in a real Mm -hmm. clinical setting and carry that through to, to launch. So. Yeah. A hundred percent. I, I agree with you. I think, uh, that idea of having the same people consistency from concept of launches there's so much that's lost when that shifts yeah. um, and uh, and so much retained when you're able to keep, you know, keep the team together from beginning to mm-hmm. end. Yeah. Um, you, you understand. I've seen it where, cause I've been on those teams. You understand the product in a, you know, very deeply in a way that can't be done when, and this is a, a marketing thing, not a compliance regulatory thing, but when they split them into upstream and downstream and this idea that someone who's more techie should do upstream and someone who's more like stereotype, rah, rah, promotional, I'm going to do all the Marcom stuff, yeah. go hang out with sales and get all the, well, I, I called it the guts and the glory, mm-hmm. upstream and downstream. There's so much loss when you like toss it over the fence to the other person, even if there's an overlap, even if you come up with the best possible ways to kind of pass the baton there, there's a lot lost. And uh, I think that, that's hard. Yeah. And I would add, at least on the um, compliance side, the product failures that you would see in manufacturing or re- returns mm-hmm. from customers the value of putting your hands on that product or seeing how it performs, you know, in the lab um, as a return, or like I said, an in-process manufacturing failure. Um, I'm, you know, hearkening back to my days as a manufacturing engineer. There's nothing to be, you can't, you cannot substitute, you know, having, putting your hands on and seeing physically um, product failures. And yes, there's a lot of good, you know, video and SEM and all of that, but um it does two things. It helps your brain. Your brain learns differently when when it's physically, you know, evaluating something. 
Mm-hmm. But it also, and this is a softer point, again, it goes to culture and that you just get a little more invested in it when something comes back from the field and it's, you know, broken or didn't work. And you're trying to think through like, you know, what, what did we not get right here? Um, or, or maybe we did and it's just an, it's a failure that's anticipated. But I think both, both matter. Mm-hmm. It's very... It is, it is interesting. I think that whole, like, you know, we all learn differently, right? But the more we do know that the more senses we employ in learning something, the more we, you know, we, we learn it more deeply. So for like touching, right, tactical, tactile, and we see it and we kind of, you know, whatever else may come into play. Yeah. Hopefully we don't smell it. <laughs> uh, but the more senses come into play, the, the more feedback you're really getting, right? About what works or what doesn't work. And the same holds true for, um, you know, for marketing being involved in that as well. Yeah. Like it, because there's always the question, at least I've run into this a lot, like, (laughs) sorry, that's user error. They weren't trained properly. Right. Right. It's all, it's all all that's how they do their procedure. Well, guess what? We're obligated to track that in our design process. (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's how they do that. Yeah. Um, and that's not always the case, right? Uh, you know, and that's the FMEA and that's a lot of other things, right? But like, what is a reasonable control for, you know, have you anticipated these things? What are the reasonable controls mm-hmm. and, and so forth? Um, but I think that's always an interesting conversation. It always, I've seen a lot of the, oh, that's user error or put in the IFU. And I'm like, nobody, nobody reads the IFU. Yeah. And that better be in your risk management plan. That better be in your FMEA. That better be something that you're looking at continuously. Is our post-market experience reflective mm-hmm. of what we thought, you know, when we set out? Right. To- and you always learn, right? You learn and then, right? You learn and you iterate. Yeah. And you do better. Hopefully. And I just want to clean up what I said about the value of, of seeing um, product failures. I don't, I'm not suggesting a regulatory person should live in, you know, a a product failure return lab. I'm just saying that that goes to the respect for the discipline. If you're in post-market surveillance and if you've never seen the way product returns work, it's the part of my job in auditing that is, that I love so much because there's just nothing, no substitution for, you know, actually being in there and, and, and seeing the process and how it, how it works. Um, mm-hmm. And again, maybe it's for your, to your point, maybe because I'm more of a visual learner. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I had a project recently in a um, supply chain project and we had the meeting in the distribution facility. And that really helped me to, to think through how to you know reduce risk because I was actually in the place where the thing was happening. And I think mm-hmm. that's what we don't have enough of in today's world. And I, I know we're doing lots better in other areas. So maybe it's just um, a sign of the times that makes me sound like an old lady, but. I don't, I think, you know, they say seeing is believing, right? Or mm-hmm. pictures worth, is worth a thousand words. And they say those things for a reason. Mm-hmm. It's different when you get, when you go stand in the cath lab, mm-hmm. right? And watch it. Or when I stand in surgery, right? Because. I can say that they don't look at the IFU. They don't even touch the pack, outer package. Why? Why don't they? Because somebody else broke the package down for them. Right. Yeah. Because the circulating nurse 
hands it to the scrub, like takes it, dumps the pa- outer mm-hmm. package, does this, and then the you know scrub nurse who's scrubbing sterile pulls it yeah. out yeah. and takes it out of any inner sterile package and hands it. To, right? I don't see any of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think, uh, yeah, putting it in. I love that idea of you know talking about supply chain and the con- being in the distribution facility because yeah. then you're in there you're in their environment. You're, you can see things and say, Oh, okay, this would, or this wouldn't work. Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're not in that environment, you, I think it's easy to come up with. (laughs) I've certainly made this mistake myself, you know, to think that I have some brilliant idea about solving something. And then they're like, uh, that's not going to work because, right. So, uh, I love that idea about being aware um, where they are and seeing it. And I've been, you know, in the products returns lab and with R and D evaluating return product mm-hmm. makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. Makes a big difference. So it's, uh, and I think the one thing, you know, you talked about meetings, stacking them up and interfering with them. I'm wondering if you have, I have my own way of, I have my own way of doing that with my business. Um, ensuring that. And uh, I'm wondering if you have, because when I was in industry, it's the same, right? Electronic, right? Computer, you gotta love it. Everyone sees your schedule. And then I would try to block time, right? I try to block like seven to nine in the morning because I'm a morning person to get a lot of work done. And then people would note, they'd say, Maureen, you're completely booked for the next week and a half. But I noticed you have the slot every day you blocked, at 8 a.m. How dare you have a so boundary? There, and I'm like, uh, yeah. so suggestions for how, like in the ideal world, you wave a magic wand, yeah. right? How, what are some ideas around how to get back to this kind of critically important cross collaboration, kind of more strategic thinking and less of running from one meeting to the next meeting, to the next meeting, to the next meeting. So you're like, are exhausted at 6 p.m. And you're like, oh, my to-do list. Yeah. That's great. Now I can get started. <laughs> well, <clears throat> um, I have two answers. Uh, I'm not great at doing it myself personally, which is where I thought you were going. And that's because I'm in a service business. And so I'm. Right. my client says it's at 7 a.m. It's at 7 a.m. And I'm going to have to do something right. else to make, make it work for my life. Um, right. But you were really asking a broader question around organizational efficiency. And um, I think there are ways to make organizations more efficient, but Mm. only, I mean, I I would want it to only be to create more space for people to think and do other activities, not so they can just, you know, shove more meetings into that space, but um, (laughs) driving decisions to the people that can make the decisions. I know that sounds weird, but having an SVP, I'm making this up, of regulatory signing off on a PMA supplement that that person didn't touch or write is is silliness, right? In terms of inefficiency. Mm-hmm. So training and hiring mm-hmm. people that can make decisions at whatever level is appropriate, but driving that lower in the organization. So you don't have these multiple layers of review for people that aren't mm-hmm. adding value. Um, Mm -hmm. If you're only making someone sign for awareness, then that's a waste of that person's time. In my opinion, they should, they should get aware through some other means. 
because there's right. so much documentation that burdens companies and this, you know, the review process and, you know, spitting out new revisions of documentation, you know, procedures and, and ECNs. There's just a lot of labor associated with the, the tactical technician side of regulatory and quality and compliance. And so mm-hmm. to the extent that we can simplify processes, drive decision-making lower, lower in the organization. Those are some strategies um, that, and then I, I mentioned this earlier, the centers of excellence, making sure that people do the thing or the best person to do the thing. Um, and then maybe grouping them in that way, rather than spreading, you know, CERs across the whole organization. Again, I'm just using that example, because, right. but we'll use ad promo just as, as an example. Um, so using COEs more effectively, um, again, but you got to hire the right person. Um, those are some ways to create more space in an organization. Okay. Yep. Hire the right people, give them the responsibility and the decision-making authority right. appropriate to their level and the training to support yep. that. Uh, and, uh, yeah, try to free up more time for other people are often copied. I've seen that. Yeah. Yeah, oh, I just copied you really need me in this meeting. Yeah, they're like, oh, well, I just wanted to make sure you knew about it in case you you don't have to be there. I'm like, yeah. terrific. If you need me, let me know. Come on, grab me. Yeah, you know. But otherwise, I'm. I'll let you be. Yeah, you have who you need. So many <laughs> meetings happen now without documentation. I find this fascinating. Like the reason we need 20 people in a meeting is, does anybody really write down what what happened and send that out? And that way, <laughs> you know, if you can't go, like. Sometimes it comes up. Agendas, right? Down what we decided. Agenda. Yeah. Even if it's like five points, five point agenda with sometimes attached to it and then notes (laughs) afterwards. Basic hygiene, meeting hygiene. And instead we're just jumping Mm -hmm. on a Zoom and talking at each other and then hanging up and going to the next one. So you could skip a meeting. If there were three sales and marketing people, you, oh, Maureen's in that meeting. I don't need to go. But it's certainly... Um, boost your confidence if then you can also see what was discussed. Even again, like you said, even if it's just the basics. Yeah, it's like a summary. Yeah, yeah and I think there, you know, there are things like Otter AI and coming along trying to help yep. us with those Ex- things. Exactly. Right. So yep. hopefully that gets a little better. But you still have to have an agenda, right? Start with the end in mind. Yeah. If you don't know where you're why going. If you're going nowhere. Why we're here? Why are we? <laughs> I had that. I had that conversation. I asked that question yesterday. I, my favorite question is. So what's the goal? So what's the goal? What's the goal of the meeting? What's the, why are we talking today? Yeah. What are we trying to achieve today? Any version to your point, any version thereof. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So that, yeah, we get on the same page and march forward. Well, Oh, we talked about a lot, <laughs> lots of messaging, lots of marketing, regulatory and compliance and quality and brochure review and how to get along better. And, uh, but I think that, you know, it's really strikes me is that the relationships are, yes, you need to drive to results and outcomes and there needs to be output, right? Um, but the development of the relationships are is something that can't be, that, that needs to be emphasized um, because you're just going to make better decisions. You're going to have the right people in the room. You're going to make better decisions, Uh yeah, more respect, develop more respect amongst kind of the amongst the folks. So, and where we started, um, you know, when I was thinking about this conversation, um, I was really thinking about your 
um, people that listen to your podcast are probably also thinking about building more value in, um, in their asset, right? And how to do that and how to make it more attractive either for an acquisition or for some strategic partnership or more, you know, um, fundraising. A lot of times it's, right. it's fun. What I usually find is it's fundraising and revenue generating. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, very few people recognize the value of understanding kind of the, the end game. Like when we get into the commercial, what do we want to say? Not like, you know, the entire training manual, but what's our, what are our key kind of message points? And therefore, are we, are we testing for that? Mm-hmm. Are we doing the, do we have the right tests? Are we testing for that? Are mm-hmm. we building the clinical, if there are clinicals, right? Um, before the submission, are we building those things into the clinical submissions so that we can eventually say them? Or do we have a publication plan to get to be able to right um, to saying them? And then are we asking what what type of indications uh, are we asking for? So I think that um, got to start with the start with the end in mind and think through the message earlier and involve all these people and all the relationships and all the kind of equivalent power structures and all the things that the the insights that you've shared today to make sure that. Um, we're making the right decisions as we move along and the best decisions for the company, which are also the best decisions for providers, whomever it may be and, and users, whoever they may be. And you're creating the right objective evidence that demonstrates compliance, um, not just for an investor who might do diligence, but, you know, big picture, you know, when, when we do get ready to sell or partner or whatever. So mm-hmm. um when we first started this conversation, we were talking about best practices. And I think I really had that in mind, you know, through the lens of doing a lot of diligence auditing. It's just so difficult when a company hasn't built that foundation from the beginning because it just costs more and takes longer to kind of go back and recreate. It's difficult to recreate, you know, some of those early um, design, you know, design files and records. So. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I've, I've, I've definitely seen it where there's much more of a, and I'm sure you've seen this as well, right? There's much more of a push for speed early mm-hmm. on yeah. as opposed to, you know, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember who, to whom I said this earlier this week, but I said, you know, and this is something I learned from my regulatory friends, right? If it's not documented, it didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. So uh, I think it's, you know, I think that idea of starting with the end in mind and starting early, yeah. often with the documentation and thinking through design control and putting these things into place makes it, yeah, I've heard the phrase pay now or pay more later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's right. Right? You get behind, it's so hard to catch up. Mm-hmm. So yes, stay ahead, know where you're headed, I'll get on the same bus. Drive in the same direction. <laughs> Find a way to get to know each other, right? Know each other and understand each other's discipline. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's where regulatory yeah. sometimes does find themselves in a bad reputation, right? Because they're they're having to you know, do the cleanup, and that's not the funnest part of the job. And sometimes it's necessary and and uh, mm-hmm. appropriate. It's when you find yourself in that position over and over and over again, it's just like a product of bad planning. Yeah. Absolutely. I had a regulatory friend of mine call me a couple of weeks ago and say, Hey, could you come, could you take a quick look at this website? And so I went, it's a client of hers and I went and took a look and I called her back and I went, 
Oh my gosh. And she said, Oh, did I, did I mention they don't have any clearance or approval yet? And I was like, no, no. And some more. No. She's like, I thought maybe I just wanted to level set with a marketing person. Sanity check. I was kind of shocked. (laughs) And I'm like, I was shocked. Like you have every right to be a bit taken aback Mm -hmm. by what's out there. So a lot of claims of safety and efficacy and Mm -hmm. no may have the potential for currently studying. None of that. Just all these big definitive statements. They they (laughs) bypass the regulatory person in the change notice for that one. (laughs) I was like, how'd that happen? She's like, well, I think that's why they hired me. (laughs) I'm like, glad. Yeah, so we've covered a lot today. Thank you so much for your time. It was great to- So great to be with you. To talk and reconnect. And uh, that's it for now for the Message Engineer Podcast. And uh, like, subscribe, follow. And we'll see you next time on the Message Engineer Podcast. Bye for now. Thanks, Maureen.